Hello, Celebration Church here and there and everywhere. Uh, uh, to Lathan's comment, my brother Mark and I have the appropriate hate for each other as brothers. He always says that he's better looking. I say that was probably true before the accident, <laughs> which we lovingly call his birth. It's so wonderful to be here when the senior pastor is not here. <laughs> this month we're focusing on the idea of generosity, which is simply an emphasis that helps us to remember that God loves to be in the mix with every part of our lives, including our financial lives. Now, uh, this devotional is really quite wonderful. It's by Gordon McDonald, and he's a brilliant writer. You'll enjoy this as you go through it over the next month. Uh, the only time I get nervous or a little put out about a particular subject is when someone starts talking about something that I think I should be doing, but I don't. Um, you know, I'll get into a conversation. Somebody's talking about eating healthily, and I'll listen for a little bit. You know, and I really do. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I want to eat better, right? But when they just, you know, droll on and on and on and on about it, uh, I start to get a little put out because, I, you know, I kind of feel that eating... Healthily is a little bit of a personal issue, right? I don't like people ranting on about it or, or take the issue the other day. I was talking with some folks. They started talking about ripped abs. <laughs> My abs are very personal, um, <laughs> deeply private, pretty unseen. Uh, uh, they are, they're surrounded in sort of a, a keg of whale blubber. So I get a little put out when people just talk about, you know, those kinds of things. I, you know, I, I don't mind talking a little bit about it. And I think that, that we have to understand the reason some people get offended about the church ever talking about money is because sometimes we're just not where we should be in this arena of generosity. And uh, in a way, we're sort of more like uh, uh, whale-blubbered non-givers than tight-abbed good givers. You know. uh, and I think that people uh, need to understand that really the reason we talk about this is not for manipulation or some sort of a gimmick that some church committee came up with, but in reality, it's a call from scripture that God through his word calls us to think about the idea of generosity. And in fact, the scripture claims that we're most like God when we participate in generosity. Here's the text that most of you know so well. Read it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave, gave Jesus, his son. There's something in God. The creator himself is committed to the notion of generosity. He's committed to giving on every level to the point of sacrifice. And somehow when we connect with him, we're most in this area of generosity, we're much like him. We're more like him. Uh, there was a, uh, this idea of committing to giving, we need to understand, really is a commitment that brings new opportunities. Because the whole idea of giving is entering God's creative gesture that produces new possibilities. And so he calls us to be generous because we're supposed to be part of creating new in our world. The new creation is to be the new humanity that brings new in the world. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's a dead guy, 
uh, lived a long time ago, and he was brilliant, and he sort of tried to talk about in language that was very uh, philosophical, Aristotelian, which is Aristotle's language, and he, he basically laid out this idea. The reason God created, that what was really happening was, he was doing this gesture that had like a boomerang effect on it. He, he called it, he used the Latin word exodus, E-X-I-D-U-S. And it meant that God extends something from himself. But when he does it, he puts a spin on it. And the spin is what he referred to as the reditus or the return. And so the idea of God's generosity was that he would put something in motion that would create a new kind of opportunity and actually would come back to him with more than what he threw out there. And so when we talk about the idea of God's creation, what he was really doing, he was being generous and he was, he was sort of extending and creating new opportunities around him. And when we are called to generosity, we need to understand that the reason is, is because we're supposed to be participating in creation in a sense. Creating new opportunities in relationships, in our circumstances, in our future. And we enter that gesture through giving. That we, when we live to hoard, to hang on to everything because we believe we don't have enough, what ends up happening is we actually halt the creative process. We actually sort of push into motion a kind of anti-creation. I mean, when you think about creation as it unfolds, it starts with God creating something out of nothing. The phrase in Latin is ex nihilo. It means that there was nothing there, but God moves and gives. And when he gives, he creates something. What he creates is a little out of order. It's sort of chaos. But then he continues to give or be generous, and then it moves to order. And then he continues to give and be generous, and it moves to good. And by the time God rests on the Sabbath, he steps back and he says, behold, it is very good. When you and I enter a generous heart or participate in generosity, we're actually participating in that creative gesture. We're moving things out of chaos into order, into good. And so you have a good friendship or a good marriage or a good relationship with your kids or a good uh, position in your job. But if you're not careful, you begin to hoard and you stop giving you actually begin to push what was good into a little bit of disorder, into a little bit of chaos, and into nothing. You take a good marriage, you stop giving to it, and all of a sudden it gets disordered. And all of a sudden it gets a little chaotic. And if you're not careful, it will actually end up as nothing when it was once good. You have a good friendship, and you withhold. I mean, one of the greatest examples of hoarding is unforgiveness. What is forgiveness anyway? It's for giving. If I'm in unforgiveness with you, I can't give you a smile. I can't give you a talk on the phone. I can't give you a a visit because I'm in ungiving. I'm in unforgiveness. And when you're in unforgiveness, you're actually putting a sort of an anti-creation into a friendship where you're pushing it out of goodness into disorder, into chaos, into the friendship no longer exists. And so we are called in a very great way to participate in creation. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, what kind of life do we want? Do we want a good life? If we do, that means that if we want everything from our circumstances to be good, our relationships to be good, and not diminishing and drifting toward nothingness, we have got to participate in this business of generosity. Problem is, being generous is scary stuff. Because we never seem to have enough. 
<laughs> you know, here, first, if we're going to get past the scariness of it, we're going to have to buy into something that's not easy to buy into. And that's this idea. Is God really the one who is our provider? Because if he's not, all we're doing is giving away what we've accrued ourselves. But if he really is our provider, if we can buy into that, if, if there's on some level we've got to wrestle with that as Christ's followers, do we believe this? Is God our provider? Because if he is, all of a sudden generosity is just simply an extension to others what God is to us. And we get it that somehow, as God said when he created humankind, he said, he said let them represent me, that they would, we would be his image, uh, that the Imago Dei is what's referred to. It's, it's the image of God that somehow we would be vicars of God. In other words, representatives of God. And if we're to be representatives of, of God, the best thing we can be is generous, right? But we've got to buy into the idea that God even has that, is, is, is promising to be that to us. And one of the things that the scripture claims to that end is that one of the ways we know that he is the provider to us is that God really is ultimately the one that gave you your breath. That your very breath is a gift. That your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your wisdom is all from God. That it ultimately comes from him. And that your talents come from God. That he's actually the one that's given you strength to be able to go to work. Right? And on some level, our very life is a result of his generosity. Uh, in Deuteronomy 8, uh, the, the, the Moses is writing, and he says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water and springs and flowing and valleys and hills. Now, there's a lot of good stuff here. A land with weed and barley, vines, fig trees, lots of McDonald's, olive oil, honey. <laughs> A land where bread will not be scarce, you won't lack anything. A land where the rocks are like, you can dig out iron, you can grab some copper out of the place. But he says, when you have eaten and when you are satisfied, he said, make sure you acknowledge the Lord. Don't forget this, this isn't just happenstance. He said, make sure you acknowledge the Lord. You praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Why? Because if you forget the Lord your God, it's real easy to be stingy. If you forget that, that's one of the greatest ways you can tell if you're forgetting God is that you're stingy, right? You may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so he confirms his covenant. The claim here is that your ability, your strength, your brother, all gifts from God. And that again, when we know that giving is a simple issue because we're simply extensions to others of what God is constantly doing for us. Not only has God promised to give us our breath and our talent and be engaged in all that, he actually promises to give us opportunities for provision. Now, this is a crazy thought, but I mean that actual God Almighty would get in the mix of your life. That he would actually help you to, to know when to buy, know when to sell, know how to do business, know how to, 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 that when you trust him, somehow he engages with you and you have more as a result of it. That's the promise of scripture. In Jeremiah 29 He's talking to the, to the Jews that were in a real bad recession. They are like in Babylon, the land of the suck. All right? And so here they are, and, and, and Jeremiah tells them through the Lord, uh, also seek peace and prosperity in the city that I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. 
Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Here's a promise that God says, engage in prayer with me because I will bless the place where you're at. And not only will the people around, or will you be blessed, but the people around you will be blessed. See, we actually have promises like that peppered all through the Bible that God actually will help us establish stronger economies. And that as a result of our engagement in the, in the world, that life can actually get better, that prosperity will actually come. Some people get offended at this kind of thought uh, because they think that trusting God for material things is really selfish. That they assume that we don't have the right to pray about that kind of thing. That, uh, you know, we only should pray about spiritual things since God knows what we want or need before we even ask him. We should just leave that whole enterprise in God's hands and not deal with it. But the Bible repeatedly makes these claims and these invitations that we're to trust him with every part of our lives, not just the spiritual parts. Uh, When you watch and you listen to Jesus, it's obvious that the earth is God's province. And that he loves to jump into the earthly stuff. Catherine Marshall writes, who's one of my favorite authors. She's also gone. But she wrote, if we are to believe Jesus, his father and our father is the God of all life. And his caring and provision include a sheep herder's lost lamb, a falling sparrow a sick child, the hunger pangs of a crowd of 4,000, the need for wine at a wedding feast, the plight of professional fishermen who toiled all night and caught nothing. These vignettes, she writes, scattered through the gospel are like little patches of gold dust that say to us, no creaturely need is outside the scope or range of prayer, end quote. See, in other words, God cares about whatever touches you. God cares about whatever we care about. I grew up thinking money, uh, you know, talking to God about money would almost be like potty talk. You know, everybody needs to do potty stuff, but it's not polite to talk about it. Right? So I never thought it was polite to pray for money, to pray to God for stuff. And I'll never forget when Gail and I were just in our, you know, just newly married. And we lived in this this apartment we called uh, the palace, which gives you a clue. It had slanted walls. It was a weird place. But it's $60 a month or something like that. And uh, we were barely making that. And, and, you know, we couldn't imagine getting another Residents, we were just newly married, and a couple of our friends in St. Louis had told us this story how they were praying for this house. Well, I was offended. Well, what do you mean you were praying? Let's pray for souls. Let's pray for spiritual life to grow. Let's let's pray for a deeper life in Christ. And die to ourselves. You know that kind of thing. I was in the deeper life. I was so deep. Anyway. And so, you know, he's saying this, and then they had this miracle house. I mean, in a, in a market that, you know, the homes are 400 plus, and this is in the 70s. You know, they got their home for about half of that. I mean, really inexpensively, and they're saying God provided. And I'm thinking, that's kind of crazy. But I, I told Gail, I said, honey, you know, the, he did point me to a couple of verses, like God will provide, you know, for you. And, that you know, the, the verses that Jesus talks about, about taking care of us, like taking care of the, the, the fields, you know, the flowers in the field and all that. And I'm kind of going, okay. And so we prayed, you know, Lord, you know, don't want to be, uh, you know, impolite here, but talk to him about it. And we looked at our finances. We could only afford $125 a month. So we listed that on our prayer. God, we would love to have a new place, a little home. And we can only pay $125 a month. And so we prayed that out. And so we, we just kept thanking you, Lord, you're dealing with it. I just, we just dared to trust him. 
And, and, and three days or four days later, in our little Marshfield News Herald over in Marshfield, Wisconsin, we saw this, this all the houses up to then have been 275, you know, 300, you know, that kind of thing. Well, here's a house that appears, a two-bedroom house for $125. I said, that's our house! You know, we got all excited. We drove over there. We did a Jericho march around the house. <clears throat> if you don't know what that is, that's a good thing. And so we went to the lady and we, we, we talked to her and, and she was an elderly lady and, and, and you know, we were just a couple of kids and we you know, told, told her what we were doing. We were in college and la la la, uh, kind of just barely getting stable. And while we were talking to her about the house, she saw, she, a guy called her who was an incoming professor into one of the little uh, university uh, that's there. And uh, she, he's offering her uh, much more money for the house. She goes, oh, that's a lot of money, <laughs> we heard her say. And so we just kind of leaned into each other and we just prayed. And we heard her say, no, I like this young couple. I'm going to give it to them. Oh, my gosh. So we got a little $125 house. I mean, to us, I, I can't, it's hard to describe the potpourri of feelings that we had. I mean, we were elated and yet humbled. We, were, we felt loved and cared for. And at the same time, we felt undone. Broken by the fact that Almighty God cared about something so domestic, so, so common. I mean, this wasn't a missionary house, you know, to reach lost people. This wasn't, you know, a, a house for wayward teens. This is where Ed and Gil Gunger just were going to live. And God moved to make it so. Uh, we had enough sense to realize that this answered prayer wasn't proof of our spirituality. It wasn't sort of some kind of badge of maturity. It was a simple God story. And uh, we felt kissed. It was our first provision kiss from God. See, when you see God provide for you, it impacts you spiritually. And uh, the Bible says that one of the spiritual results of God's supernatural provision is just flat joy. And it's all of that. But there's more. You feel his love. You feel his embrace. And you feel like it breeds hope for the future. All of a sudden you think, oh my gosh, if God provides, my life is not futureless. If God provides, then I can afford to engage. I can actually be generous because I'm not just coming from a well that's dry. I've got something more. See, God's provision fosters wonder and awe. <laughs> and and, and th- this is the wonderful side of money. Uh, Jesus said, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to his kids? To people who ask him. It's just so sweet to discover that God really is a father. But spiritual adventures of wonder that surround this idea of provision are only possible when we possess money and money does not possess us. It's being possessed by money that turns this subject dark. See, money can be wonderful, but it can also be deadly. Jesus it gave lots of warnings in the Bible, and they're severe about this issue of money. He said in Luke 6, 24, woe to you who are rich. He said in Luke 12, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know that in America, most of us think that's exactly 
what it is that we are who we are because of what we have. In some cases, Jesus went extreme on this deal. He said in Mark 10, Jesus looked at them, this guy that he loved, this guy, he was a rich guy. And he said, you know, one thing you lack. He said, go, now this will mess with you, go sell everything you have and give it all to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, I'll give you a job, come follow me. Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, he said. What do you do with a text like that? What do you do with texts like these? These warnings. Well, first of all, you listen to them. Without rationale, without explanation, you just listen to them. Because when you listen to them, something begins to emerge in you when you get still and let these kinds of texts mess with you. They will make you nervous. It's a little terrifying to listen, but all of us need a good scare now and again, especially about this area of money. One thing pops up loud and clear when you listen. Money can be a threat to your faith. It's a threat because it's not a neutral thing. It's not like a pet. (laughs) Money, in a sense, is like an alternative God. And that's what Jesus, it vies for our adoration. That's what Jesus suggests. He claims in Luke 16, no person can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Say it with me. You cannot serve both and... See, somehow, there's something about money. There's something about our stuff that competes for our devotion. People serve money the way they serve God. Why? Because money transfers to its owners certain God-like characteristics. I mean, for instance, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. You give people a chunk of change, a chunk of cash, and they start feeling omnipotent as though they can do anything they want. See, money transfers that to its owners. Or think about God being omnipresent. Wealth carries a hint of omnipresence because that means God can be anywhere he wants at any time. Because those who are wealthy believe they can go anywhere at any time. See, it gives that sense, that rumor of the divine. Or God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. The rich come to believe they can find out whatever they want and make things happen that no one else can, that they're smarter than... It just, money does that for people. Now, that doesn't mean money can't be used. Man, get all of it you can. It's just you have to understand that it's not a neutral thing and it will mess with you. Understand, see, the point is you can't be casual about it. In Exodus 20, it's the first commandment in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any gods before me. All that means is money will qualify as a rival god. Make sure it doesn't, it is not a rival god in your heart. That you won't let it be a godlike thing in your heart. Paul warned about this in 1 Timothy 6, our last text. For the love of money is the root of all kind of trouble. The love of it. Some people eager for it have wandered from the faith and faith and they pierce themselves with all kinds of griefs. See, I think the secret to experiencing the wonderful side of money, where you enjoy the provision of this loving father and you stay free from money's dark side, this idolatrous pull, it's one simple thing, being generous, just giving a lot. I don't know what it is, but giving touches a nerve in us that nothing else does. It will mess with you big time. The times that Gail and I have been in trouble, you know, financial kind of issues where we just don't have enough. There's been times we've just written out our tithe check and I'll I'll fold it and I'll put it in my pocket and I've carried it around for the week. 
And every time I reached in and pulled it out, you know, sometimes I carried it for longer than a week because I'm thinking, there goes my carpet, you know. <laughs> there goes my, I don't want to give you away, I love you. You know, I, there's, something about, there's something about giving that just flat messes with you. But when you take it and you hold it and you say, God, this is my declaration that you're involved with me. This is my declaration. What you're doing when you're giving is it just, you defy the fear that you won't have enough. When you're giving, you're actually insulting that greed that rises. That greed is impulse to acquire and possess more, more, more. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Right? You, you actually insult that. And money, uh, you, you'll frustrate. When you give, you frustrate that thing called avarice. Avarice is that, that insatiable desire for wealth. It's that, that thing that's referred to as one of the historical deadly sins of the seven. Money only becomes soul-destroying when we use it to taste omnipotence or taste the powers of God, when we seek power and position. That's the only time it does. It only ravages the heart when we allow a longing for money to blind us with fear and with greed. All of that is beat up. All of that is pushed back. All of that is obviated in the act of being generous. That's why we talk about it. If we really believe God owns it all and that he's our source and our provider, giving becomes a simple matter. On the other hand, if you believe that what you have is yours, you're unsure whether God had anything to do with it, dude, you will hold on to your stuff for dear life. This arena of giving, it's the only area that you really get to test what's going on in your heart. I was diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes a while back, and uh, which I hate. You know, that, it's the sugars. <laughs> and uh, and I, they give me a little thing that I put on my finger and ping, you know, it pings it. Which doesn't feel good. It's kind of, ow, it's a little owie. And then I squeeze out some blood. And I got this little tester and I put the little tester on the blood. And, uh, and then I get to read how I'm doing. It hurts a little, but it helps me know how I'm doing. Listen, giving is exactly like this. It is the, it hurts a little. It's a little bit of, ow. And, you, and it makes you bleed a little. But what happens when you, you see what's going on? Because if you're pushing back and resisting and you get even angry when the church even talks about this, thank God the church talks about this. We should also talk about prayerlessness. We'd also talk about other kinds of issues that make you squirm. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean all is flowery and everyone has a good time. Christianity is about getting in your face and you're going, oh, I hate this. This really is horrible. Yes, welcome to the cross life. (laughs) This isn't just about fun. This is about getting beat up a little. So thank God for this time. Thank God that we can talk about generosity this month. Thank God for a devotion like this that hopefully will mess with you and you will hate reading it. (laughs) But do it anyway. Why? Because having a good life with God and being a generous person is the best life to live. Let's pray. Father, we are forever grateful for your grace. We are forever grateful that you are the creator who gives. And God, we just ask you to help us be your vicars. Help us be your people who represent you and not just consumerism or anything like an American dream. Help us represent the kingdom of God in a world that's lost. We ask In Jesus' name, amen. Grace to you. Thanks for listening.
I'm going to invite the ushers if they would come and as our worship team comes back on stage as we take a few moments here before we, as we, before we close our service. As Pastor Ed has been saying this morning, and we've been talking a little bit about this generosity devotional, this first week that launches tomorrow, as you get one of these books, as you leave this morning, and as you join with us as a church, Celebration Church with each one of our campuses, uh, the first week of theme, the theme of the first week is moving towards transformation. You may have seen the graphic at the back there, moving towards transformation. Here Pastor Ed has been talking a lot about transformation in our lives in terms of what God is challenging us with, with our finances, with being generous and experiencing generosity in our life. How that messes with us, how that changes us, how we can be transformed. This morning I want to add to that by challenging us with another transformation. In a few moments we're going to be partaking of communion. We're going to be taking a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ. We're going to hold in our hand a cup with grape juice or wine in it that represents the blood of Jesus. And when we do that and we partake of it together, what we're looking towards and what we're remembering, what Jesus did for us on the cross, when He came and He suffered and He died, He shed His blood so that you and I could have transformation in our lives. We can be transformed. That we can be a, a people that have experiencing sin, have walked in sin, and, and have experienced now faith in God, trust in God, forgiveness of our sins, the blood of Jesus that washes us clean and creates in us a new life, a transformation. So you may be here this morning, and, and in just a few moments, we're going to, I'm going to invite you to just to pray a very simple prayer with me. Repeat this prayer after me. And if you this morning are praying that prayer, maybe for the very first time. Maybe you've been invited to come this morning, first time at Celebration Church, and things have been a little bit strange so far. You're a little uncomfortable. Maybe uh, had your finger pricked a couple of times. Be ready to have your finger pricked one more time. Because the Holy Spirit is here this morning to challenge you in your relationship with God. Where do you stand? Have you confessed, or confessed your sins? Have you repented of your sin? Have you by faith accepted Christ into your life as your personal Savior? So I'm going to invite you this morning. If you would join with me, if you bow your heads with me, and I just invite you to pray this simple prayer. Again, if you're praying it this morning for the very first time, God's Word says that He comes. He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He sets us free. We move out of a place. We're transformed from a place of death into glorious life. So would you pray this prayer, this simple prayer after me this morning? Dear Lord Jesus, something in my heart tells me that I need you. I now confess my sin and repent of my sin. And by faith, ask you to come into my life as my personal Savior and my Lord. Amen.